Hello, my name is Steve Vieira and welcome to Audience Surrogate. Hello to all the watchmen and watchwomen out there who are excited to talk about the year in film. Joining me today through the magic of the internet, the latest head of visual effects and post-production at Marvel Studios, it's Matthew Gilbert! Hey! Oh, that is such a sad intro considering the recent news regarding Victoria Alonso. Mm -hmm. But it's great news for you, Gilbert. I'm excited to see you finally get recognized for your ideas. Going to bring a revolution in creative narrative storytelling to uh, the Marvel Universe. My first order of business is to give the teams the time they need and to not make release dates before I have a movie ready. Four more years, man. Four more years. That's the kind of thing I would... uh, You've got my vote. All right. Well, now that we've announced Gilbert's totally serious and not a joke at all promotion over in the most magical place on Earth, uh, let's get right into our podcast today. We've got a couple of things to talk about. So last week was the first episode, the maiden voyage, if you will, of Audience Surrogate. uh, And it was an exciting time for Gilbert and for me. And we took a look back at 2022, the past year in film, especially by looking at the Academy Awards, the domination of everything, everywhere, all at once, and some of the changes to the Academy, what that might signal for the future. So today, it's time to throw our podmobile in the other direction, and we are going to drive into the sunset, looking at some of our most anticipated films of the year of our Lord 2023. But first... Before we look to the West, we're going to dwell. So the Oscars, not ones to ever sit on their laurels or uh, be behind the times, are already contemplating a new rule change to the films that would be eligible for consideration in a given year at the Academy Awards. Gilbert, you sent me an article a couple days ago with this news. Do you want to uh, share it with the world here? First of all, I think I speak for the entire movie-going public when I say, don't do this. The Academy is strongly considering a new rule in which for a film to be eligible in the category of Best Picture, it would be required to play on theater screens in 15 or 20 of the country's top 50 markets to be considered. What does this mean? When they say it has to play in theaters to be eligible, that is clearly a shot across the bow at every single streaming platform. That is a clear sign of the Academy saying, you will have to drag us into the future kicking and screaming, of saying they are not interested in adapting. They are not interested in recognizing all the ways that film has changed, that movies have changed, that audiences have changed. Because what you essentially have here is saying, if a movie is a streaming exclusive, it cannot be considered for best picture. So what I think that means if they institute this rule, because right now this is just a rumor and it has not been concretized in the eligibility of the Academy. And if it is, we probably will not find out until at least this summer. But what that essentially means is if Netflix and Apple and Hulu and Amazon are not willing to put their movies out on an extremely wide theatrical-based viewing perspective, then those movies are shut out from the conversation from Best Picture. Now, Netflix has absolutely flirted with theatrical distribution in the last few years. They put The Irishman in a handful of theaters when that came out. 
they put Glass Onion in theaters for a week last year when that came out. But these are movies that are by undisputed auteurs. Martin Scorsese, Ryan Johnson, they had Roma, Alfonso Cuaron. Apple had Coda. I believe that played in theaters for about a week as well, but that was almost entirely a streaming-based audience. And what that essentially means is if you are not something that already has a reason for audiences to be expected to go see it, then you are out of the conversation for best movie. And that is infuriating to me because there are so many movies out there that are basically masterpieces that would stand not a single chance in the box office horse race every single week. And so the ones that these streamers want to campaign for this category they're going to have to spend an exorbitant amount of money, not just on the campaigns and the lunches and the ads, but on theatrical distribution as well. So they're not going to do that if there is not a significant chance that this movie will be a heavy hitter at the Academy Awards. And I think that is going to mean a lot of movies that deserve that kind of consideration are not going to even be in the conversation for Best Picture. And even the ones that they do put out in theaters I think that theater owners will be the first ones to tell you those movies, the ones that are vying tooth and nail for best picture nominations are not the ones that audiences go to see in theaters. And a lot of the time when a movie has an historically low box office, that will kill his best picture chances in a heartbeat. So I see this as an objectively terrible move. I understand everyone's fascination and connection to movie theaters, to theatrical distribution, but this is quite possibly the most out-of-touch move the Academy could be doing at this particular junction. Yeah. When I look at this, the major question that I have is whether or not this is a reaction or whether or not this is the Academy being true to form, because just last year, as you pointed out, CODA won the Academy Award for Best Picture. This streaming underdog came out of nowhere and beat out every other film because it touched people, it reached people, which is something that the box office and the the film industry has had a difficult time doing, actually getting people to see movies. And it was rewarded by getting the top honors at the Academy or at the Oscars. Last year, the major competition for CODA was The Power of the Dog, another streaming film, this one from Netflix. This year, we had a couple of streamers, I think, that kind of nibbled at the bit. We had All Quiet on the Western Front, a Netflix title, coming in second, I believe, to Everything Everywhere All at Once in terms of the total number of awards received. So it's fascinating to me how in an era where we have seen streaming really run up the ranks of the Academy and perform very highly at the Academy, suddenly they're closing the doors. So is this them saying the pandemic is over and we don't feel like we need streaming as a crutch anymore? Is this a way of turning their back on certain studios who they don't feel are playing by the rules of Hollywood or who are behaving in a way that makes them feel threatened? Or is this just the Academy saying we're not going to change? You have to come to us and play on our terms in order to be granted a seat at the table. I think there's a very metronomic attitude. They try to do something and when they don't get the results that they want to see, they either reverse course or they suddenly try something different. I don't know what is prompting them or what might be pushing them to enact this change. You know, whether they are looking at 
the rise of streaming and saying we don't think this is good for movies or the health of our industry or if this is just them not recognizing this is where the industry is going now this is this is the reality that we live in right and my question right now is when did they first start considering this because it seems weird to be doing it immediately following everything everywhere all at once is historic what was it seven wins i think seven yeah now as you said last year boiled down to a competition between two streamers coda and power of the dog and last year also they had the giant will smith slap snafu so part of me is wondering were they shocked and appalled by the race between two streamers last year and they wanted to change the eligibility this year but because they had so much damage control following will smith they couldn't or as you said are they just trying to encourage a return to theaters and save the theatrical industry etc either way it just seems stuffy and elitist and exclusionary I hate the idea that a movie has to be at least a box office contender to be even in the conversation for Best Picture because, again, audiences these days are not flocking to the genuinely artful films. And if we're going to start seeing the biggest blockbusters of the year become Best Picture nominees, even the ones that aren't your Top Gun Mavericks and your Avatar The Way of Waters, then that is only going to further delegitimize the prestige of the Academy, of the award for Best Picture. Because how can you be a contest and a celebration of the best movies of the year when you refuse to consider a hefty percentage of movies released in the year? I think for the Academy, chasing legitimacy means chasing certain constituencies. I think that this might be the Academy's way of playing to a base, frankly, because as you've pointed out, audiences don't really care about going to see something in the theater. They're not as invested in the theatrical experience as the people who work in Hollywood, critics, uh, you know, certainly not the talent. And I think The Fablements is a classic example. Tar is another one. But The Fablements, you have Steven Spielberg, the, perhaps the most crowd-pleasing director that we've ever had, certainly in our lifetime. He puts out a film about his own life, about the magic of cinema, about growing up, and that barely pops a bubble at the box office. That got... I Did that do $30 million of business? I think it was really just a wash. So I don't think that this is going to drive anybody back to theaters. I think the Academy is foolish if they say that. But I think that this is the Academy's way of saying to mem the membership, to the people in Hollywood who are maybe trying to join their ranks or who are funding them, that they are guardians of cinema, that they are the guardians of what their art truly is. One thing that we know about the Academy is that their largest block of membership comes from actors. And one thing we know about actors is that they disproportionately care about the theatrical experience. It's not just directors who are saying, I dreamed of bringing this story to the big screen. The actors also want to see a theatrical release, and they also want to be able to see themselves on a big screen. Maybe that's because that's where the money is. If they are able to have a successful box office push, that's going to give them more of a bottom line than releasing a hit on streaming and something that goes viral, for example. But I do think that this is a way of saying to the people in the academy who might be nervous after a few years of declining membership who might feel that the academy is too volatile after things like the slap and whatever else that they are going to lean into trying to quote unquote protect cinema 
and be the true guardians of the industry by deciding what films are legitimate for awards. And if that means that more films have to go back to the actual exhibition theatrical model, I think that might be their way of shoring up their foundations. That is going to fundamentally change the way that these campaigns have to be run. And I know I said last week that I want to stop the campaigns and I want the Academy Awards to be more of a meritocracy than an ass-kissing contest. But what I see happening here is that is going to destroy so many movies' chances to pick up traction late in the race. And I think that this would be a move that is unfair to artists. I think it is a move that is unfair to audiences. And I think it just further solidifies how out of touch the Academy Awards are falling. And they seem to be doubling down on it, frankly. So if I'm hearing what you're saying right, it sounds like you think that the fact that films now have to make a stronger run at the theatrical release is going to hurt films that could have otherwise released on streaming and made a splash right away. So if that is the undercurrent of thinking, does that mean you think that a streamer is more likely to be successful at the Oscars or has greater potential of becoming Oscar-worthy, generating Oscar buzz, then theatrical? Has it have things completely reversed now? It's going to depend on the year. It's going to depend on who purchases what movies at what festivals, because for the last several years, that seems to be how best picture races are decided. What is snatched up at Sundance and Cannes and Venice and Toronto? What is distributed? How and how do they position it in a way that seems friendly to the Academy? And Netflix has money. Warner Brothers has money. HBO has money. Hulu has money. Amazon obviously has money. They pick up some phenomenal films from some phenomenal filmmakers, especially ones that don't make much of a ripple in the public consciousness, but are just terrific cinematic experiences. And the ones that go to streamers now just have an unfair hill they have to climb because in addition to the standard marketing push they have to make, now they have to fight for a spot in theaters where everything else that is purchased by the theatrical distribution houses, you know, your legacy production houses like Paramount, Warner Brothers, Sony, all of those, you're going to see a strong sense of favoritism being extended to the movies that frankly just had better luck at who they got bought by. So do you think this is going to accelerate those content wars of who can just buy up the most new films or the most product in the marketplace? It's now going to be about the best distribution versus the best film, possibly? Hasn't it always been, at least for the last 20 years or so? Turning my question back against me. The nerve of you, sir. No, but seriously, how many times has a truly great movie been completely ignored by the Academy because it did not position itself correctly, because it got overshadowed by something else? And how is that in any way a measure of what the best movies of the year are? Or are they just a measure of what the most noisy movies of the year are that don't have a franchise attached to them. Your Babylon Hive is showing, Gilbert. (laughs) I wasn't even thinking of Babylon, but 100% Babylon. I agree with you. I do think, especially to the point you made about A Cinema Second Life, the one thing that, or the one film that comes to mind for me is Banshees of Inisherin, which was one of my favorites this year, which I don't think hit the same highs, certainly not at the Academy. I don't know that it picked up a single award of its seven nominations, but I really enjoyed that film. It was one of my favorites of the past year, 
And when it, it came out in October, it was a nothing burger. I don't know that anyone went to see it. It really had a minimal box office performance. But especially after it released on HBO Max, it really injected into the culture. You saw a lot of people talking about it, screenshotting it, circulating different images and discussing it online. And I think that there was a pretty, you know, legitimate push that there could have been an underdog story for Colin Farrell or uh, Barry Keoghan at the Oscars. So I do think that it's distribution. Uh, you're right. It's ironic because that is a studio film that was put out by Warner Brothers in theaters that still couldn't find its footing. So maybe... It's just a function of, like you said, there's no IP attached, and that's not going to turn people out. There's just a depressed box office. We don't know how to reach people. So there's a lot of things happening in combination here. I agree with you. I don't think that this decision is going to be good for anybody. I think that this is trying to put a Band-Aid on a leaky fire hydrant, um, and I think that it's not going to have the effect that they want. Exactly. Streaming is the way that culture spreads these days. Unless you have the word Marvel in front of your movie title, people do not care if you release in theaters. What the Academy is essentially doing here is trying to single-handedly reverse that trend. They are trying to put the center of culture back into movie theaters instead of streaming, which means that they are betting on tradition over convenience, which I don't think is a battle that anyone has ever won. No. I don't think you can fight that war of attrition for a long time, but you can't win it. All right. So I think that now we're going to put the final nail of the coffin in 2022. May we never speak of it again, strike it from the record and erase all trace of its memory. Now, the only thing that I want you to remember is breathing, fine dining and cinema in the year 2023, because that's what we're talking about today. As much as it's great, to just dive right into something and to get your instant gratification and to appreciate things for the beauty of how they can impress you. There's also a few things that are better than getting yourself hyped up and allowing your expectations to completely take the wheel. And that's going to be the name of the game for us today. Gilbert and I are going to take a look at some of the films we're most excited for this year. You might be thinking that this is going to be some kind of top five or a top ten. Well, the house rules say that we are going to show you our top nine most anticipated films of this year. So a couple of things we're going to say before we actually do the deed here. Gilbert, any thoughts you have about the year 2023, what you're expecting, what you think we're going to be uh, treated to at the cinema? Yes. <laughs> so first of all, 2023 is also well underway at time of recording. Several of the big movies of the year have already released some to unexpected surprises and some to unexpected disappointments. But as I was looking at the list of everything coming out over the next eight months, one thing that stuck out to me is just exactly how much of it is franchise IP is based on existing property. Obviously, you have several fascinating indie darlings that are coming up that we will definitely be discussing but looking at a lot of most anticipated lists made by a whole bunch of publications months ago there's a lot of either legacy titles colon new movie title or there's a lot of franchise title number two three four five etc and that's obviously not what you want for cinema you don't want everything to be as our good friend Marty would say, a theme park. You want to see movies being explored in 
all forms and not just the noisiest ones. But I must say, the ones that I am excited about are the ones that I also know the least about. This is a pretty muted year in terms of hype, but there's a lot coming out that we don't know exactly what form they will take. There is a lot of anticipation being built around Barbie, of all things, which under any director other than Greta Gerwig would not be making this kind of a furor, essentially. And I think that that gives the movies that are coming out, the movies like The Killer or Gran Turismo or Dune Part 2, the ones that we know are coming out, but we've seen very little of, I think it gives them a better chance to actually impress us rather than to build their hype to monumental levels and either have to meet it or inevitably fail to. I agree with a lot of what you're saying there, Gil. I think that part of the situation where we find ourselves is that we're still pretty far out from most of the big movies or some of the noisy movies of this year. I'm thinking, as you're saying about some of that franchise IP, but I think that Barbie is a good example. That is releasing about three or four months from the time of recording. So we've had one trailer for that. We've had a couple of production photos. So I think that we will see more as we get closer that will help to try to actually stoke that excitement and try to get us prepared so that we can say, this is what this film is and this is what makes me want to go see it. But I think for me, as you're saying, it's more about what I'm willing to give a chance. I'll see what gets recommended to me by my trusty algorithms or by my friends and I'll wait until it's convenient and available. But this year there are a lot of movies coming out. A lot of them are from that IP universe, but a lot of them are from returning pros. A lot of them are from people who this is not their first rodeo. They know how to make a production. They, you know, are celebrated perhaps for their originality and inventiveness. So this year, what I'm trying to do is I'm not trying to go into things fully gassed up about what I'm going to see or already having decided what I'm going to order off that menu. I'm just really excited to see what filmmakers have to give me this year and to see what is out there. As much as this year is following in the trends of the past few years, I think that there are some really interesting divergences, some really interesting opportunities this year for some creative storytelling, and I'm hyped for that. I'm open to being open. Absolutely. Should we begin with your number nine? All right. So number nine. Close your eyes, count backwards from nine, because... I'm going to hypnotize you, Gilbert. I'm going to hypnotize you right here. My number nine film is a little ditty called Hypnotic. This is an upcoming film written and directed by Robert Rodriguez and starring a little maniac named Ben Affleck. I believe that we have here a release date in April or May. I am on the website Internet Movie Database where I am getting the logline. A detective investigates a mystery involving his daughter and a secret government program. Now, on the one hand, that's like 80 movies. I'm sure that if I were to go onto Netflix right now, it would probably have a channel that says Detective Investigates Daughter Secret Government Program, and it could give me a bunch of Ryan Gosling and Paul Greengrass things and all, you know, who knows what else. But at the same time, Robert Rodriguez. Really, really cool director. He's part of the Tarantino stable, you might call it, but he's someone who very much, you know, works with Tarantino and was inspired by him. And he can take an idea that might seem small or kitschy and really just blow it up, accentuating the genre, accentuating the kind of grittiness of it, the grindhouse nature of it. So I'm, I think this could be really fun. In the spirit of being open to being open, this is a movie where I want to go in and just see what it has to say, what adventure it's going to take me on, and let it thrill me. I'll be honest. I had not heard of this one before. I did not know Robert Rodriguez was releasing a new movie, and 
frankly, I'm a little bit disappointed that he's not making that second Alita Battle Angel movie because that was the best thing I'd seen him release in quite some time. Rodriguez has always been kind of hit and miss for me. I I appreciated what his kids' movies were, The Spy Kids and your Shark Boy and Lava Girl, for better and worse, but I did not care for the kind of humor that the Machete movies were there for. That was not for me. So if this one wants to be more like Alita and less like that, then I am all in because Robert Rodriguez is, if nothing else, a visual master. When he does an action set piece, almost no one can do one better. And it doesn't matter if he's doing it practically or not. Yeah, so he obviously, as you said, has been the director of some films. You know, his kids' fair, including Spy Kids, was a staple of my diet growing up. Love Spy Kids. Dusk Till Dawn is probably what he's most famous for. That's a movie that I really enjoy. In recent years, he has dabbled into the Star Wars universe. He has directed some episodes of The Mandalorian, including an episode in season two featuring really the return of a major character. And that episode is entirely one prolonged action set piece. And it is awesome. He does a great job with it. There was a great behind the scenes story of how he mocked it up with his kids in his backyard doing kind of like a, you know, a homemade movie thing. That's how he got his concept. So again, I think he's a guy who is very down to earth. He can think of these really impressive ideas that work around a simple concept but that are completely captivating so I'm, I'm really excited to see what this is sometimes he does miss machete was kind of you know there were things about it that I liked, things about it that I thought were were just fine or tolerable. But I think especially working with a star like Ben, I don't know that he's ever worked with someone who is that much of an A-lister. I mean, he worked with George Clooney in the 90s, so what am I talking about? But yeah, this is really a big star. And Ben Affleck is really in quite the renaissance right now, so I think that this is going to have a lot of promise. I will definitely keep my eye on this one. All right. Gilbert, nueve. Absolutely. My number nine is a little movie called You Hurt My Feelings. This is directed by Nicole Holoff Center. It stars Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Tobias Menzies and Arian Moyed from Succession. The basic premise of this movie is Julia Louis-Dreyfus is a writer towards the tail end of her career. Her best days and her best works are clearly behind her. But she writes a new book and she asks her husband to read it and she overhears him giving his honest opinion which is that he essentially hates it. And while that's not necessarily the most exciting premise for a movie in the world, I love the idea of watching this kind of conflict play out as far as them as professionals, as far as their marriage. This just sounds like the kind of juicy drama that I am all over and everybody else I talk to could not possibly be less interested in. So sign me up for this one. Tobias Menzies, people might know from Game of Thrones. He had an episode of Black Mirror. I believe he was also on The Crown. He always plays a bit of a slimy shit. So you just know that him in this character as the husband against the legend that is Julia Louis-Dreyfus, they're going to be something that is so much fun to watch. Well, Gilbert, it turns out that there are people who are more excited to see this than you because this is the number six on my list. I'm thrilled. Well, I'm thrilled that you have this represented here. And I completely echo everything that you're saying. I am in the bag for Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You know, Her Royal Majesty JLD, Veep is one of my favorite shows. Again, she, in the past few years, has been getting a little more work. I think that people have definitely noticed her in the MCU, but I'm glad that she can 
still lead a movie. I, she is probably most famous for her work in TV, obviously on Seinfeld, on Veep, you know, other projects. But now she's finally getting her time as a leading lady, and I love that a movie is going to be built around her. I love the cast, Tobias Menzies, especially David Cross. Tobias from Arrested Development is one of my favorite TV characters. So anytime he appears, it always just brings such a smile to my face. So I think this is going to be really funny. Nicole Center and JLD have worked together before on 2013's Enough Said. That was a comedy uh, with Julia and James Gandolfini. I think that this could be a really cool reunion for them. I think that this could be hilarious. And I just can't wait to have a laugh with it. I kind of came in there, did a joyride at the end of your your pick, but I think it's quite a fabulous pick and there's room for two on that bike. Fantastic. Can't wait for it. This does not currently have a distributor, but I'm positive it will be picked up and released at some point. And the cool thing is I can see this going anywhere. I can see this going to Hulu. I can see it going to Amazon. I can see it going to theaters. I can see it going to Apple. There's a lot to be said for simple dramas that don't require a theatrical setting, but also wouldn't be hurt by one. I think that this could be in the Knives Out track, or I think this could follow in the footsteps of Knives Out, where it's a film that if it were to go to a streamer, I think would be best served by having even a limited release, because I think that it's the kind of thing with proper marketing could really excite people. We've heard time and time again, pundits proclaim the death of the studio comedy and that there's not any interest in studio comedies. I'm not ready for that because I am a member of the audience and I love to laugh. Julia Louis-Dreyfus, boy oh boy, she makes me laugh. David Cross, Tobias Menzies, Arian Moyad, I've loved seeing him. I'm glad that he is finally starting to cash in some of his succession tokens and get some other projects lined up. I think that Apple makes a lot of sense because they love to put out these very star-driven projects, especially ones that are kind of about modern upper-class life. So I think that this could fit really nicely inside of their offerings. And I also think that Apple has made a big announcement of their theatrical intentions that they want to move a lot of their projects for theatrical release so i would love it whether it's apple or somewhere else if they do put it on streaming to make it available to a mass audience but also put it in theater so that people can go and have that experience with it i just hope that it succeeds i think that it will do very successful in the crowds of like middle-aged moms and maybe older gentlemen as well. I think that Julia Louis-Dreyfus is somebody who's been around for long enough that she can sell people who have been following her for that long on her inclusion alone. I think that we can see a lot of people just going to see this purely for her. One ticket for Julia, please. <laughs> That's exactly what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. All right. So my number eight is the Super Mario Brothers movie. Speak on it. I think, as we were saying before we started listing, this is a movie where it is IP. Uh, it's not coming from a film universe, but certainly one of the most longest-running video game franchises in existence. And despite the prevalence and popularity of this character, despite my own exposure extensively to the games, 
I have no idea what I'm going to get here. Um, I don't know how much they're going to try to recreate one of the games because Mario, they're they're not always very narrative-focused titles. I'm not sure how many story elements they're going to blend. The trailers have indicated that there's going to be some crossover from titles like Mario Kart in addition to some of the Super Mario titles. But I really just don't know what to expect here. Super Mario is notorious in the film world as being one of the first video game adaptations that spectacularly failed in a legendary fashion. I think that every indication suggests that this is not going to happen. It looks like there was a lot of care put into producing this, and I think that a lot of people are still hesitant, but... I am going to give it a chance. It looks gorgeous. It looks very, very similar to what I might expect to see firing up my Switch or firing up my GameCube. This is a recognizable character, and I think that sometimes that's the most significant hurdle to clear. I think back to 2018 or 2019's Detective Pikachu, and the best part of that movie, aside from how much I actually enjoyed, you know, the story and the characters, was, look at these Pokemon! They're real! I can't believe it! The Sonic the Hedgehog films, which I haven't seen are the same way and they represent this even better because the first iteration of Sonic we got was pure nightmare fuel. So I think that the fact that they are working so hard to make this something that is very visually engaging and very recognizable to the audience I mean obviously if you're going to pick this kind of adaptation you gotta do it right. You gotta let people know that this is something that they're familiar with but I also think that the way that they have selected the characters gives uh, or the cast rather gives me a lot of faith. I know that most people were turned off by the Chris Pratt voice and they were expecting more of a mamma mia, but I'm trying not to let that weigh me down. I think that's a hill that they can overcome. What's most interesting to me is Anya Taylor-Joy as Princess Peach and Jack Black as Bowser. I think that they have the potential to be really interesting, really funny crowd favorites. I think that this is a situation where the Mario Brothers probably will be incidental to what makes this film successful, but I've loved watching the recent recent spate of video game releases, how they've been received warmly by fans in many cases, how that's encouraged more studios to explore adaptation, especially when it's done with a mind on the fans and with a mind on the actual piece of work they're producing, not just for the sake of shoveling out some sort of synergistic corporate schlock. Most people feel some kind of way about Illumination. People who are watchers of film, you know, they might look at it as the people that brought you Despicable Me or the people that brought you, you know, some other kind of classless animated films, dare I say it? But I think that they've actually really busted out the special sauce for Super Mario. I think that Nintendo is a studio that exercises a lot of tight control over their brands. So I think that they definitely will want to make sure that this one succeeds. But this is one that I'm really excited to give it a chance. It just looks like a bright, fun piece of something I'm willing to give a try. I have a lot of complicated feelings about this one. There's a lot of why this, there's a lot of why them, there's a lot of why now. And I want to believe this will be good. Every cell of my body is telling me there is every reason that this will not work, that this should not work, that this is going to be another notch on Illumination Entertainment's unfortunate belt. But then I look at the trailer and it looks like such a good time. It looks like so much fun. You can see just from the attention to detail in the creation of the Mushroom Kingdom, the Toads, all the way down to Mario's suspenders. This is made by people, at the very least, under the careful 
watchful eye of Nintendo, making sure this is recognizably the Mario that you know from the games. And I think there's a lot to be said there, that Nintendo has been extremely protective of giving the rights to their IP to anyone other than themselves ever since that very unfortunate Bob Hoskins movie, Bob Hoskins Innocent. And when they announced that they were giving the film rights to Universal and specifically Illumination, I groaned. That was the last studio I would have wanted to see making a Super Mario Brothers movie. As you said, people have some complicated feelings about Illumination, and I am certainly one of them. I have not enjoyed one of their movies since the very first Despicable Me. I find their content, frankly, I don't want to say I find it cheap, but it feels like it is made to play to the lowest common denominator, to be the least artistically expressive or impressive, to churn out maximum profit. That is what Secret Life of Pets has been. That is what the Minions movies have been. That is what all soon-to-be four Despicable Me movies have been. That's what The Grinch was. And it's not what I want to see for arguably the most iconic video game character of all time. When they announced the cast... I could have predicted that cast in my sleep. This feels like a movie that was cast by an algorithm. It feels like a verifiable who's who list of who is both popular and inoffensive enough to churn out, again, the maximum profit of the box office. And it's going to work. This movie's going to make a billion dollars, almost guaranteed. It has nothing in its way until the summer movie season starts. I want to believe that Illumination is turning over a new leaf. I'm positive that Nintendo would not be putting their name on this if they did not believe in the product they were putting out. I'm positive they would not have given Universal exclusive theme park rights to Nintendo if they were not excited for bringing these characters in this world to audiences in this new format. But I have been burned by Illumination before, so I am going into it with an open mind, but I'm going to say trust but verify. Definitely. Yeah, I think the problem with any big swings that you might miss, Illumination certainly might miss here. And I think that, that if it does fail, I think that all the problems that you are just describing will feel so much greater. Because Illumination, say what you will about them, does a lot of original stories. I mean, we now have four Despicable Me's and however many Minions films, two Sings, two Secret Life of Pets, but these started as just original concepts that they developed. So I think that they certainly have a house style that you can see in all of their films. And I think that if the Super Mario Brothers movie is not successful, then people will say this is just another attempt by Illumination to chase the dollar, to get as much as they can, you know, to make the most memeable, possibly, piece of work out there. Because I think that one thing is that a lot of their films go viral. The most recent, was it Minions? The Rise of Gru? Was that the title that came out over the summer? You saw the Gentle Minions trend, which is not something that I encourage or want to see repeated in any way. But they know how to kind of penetrate the public consciousness in a certain way. I think that there's no easier way to do that than picking up one of the most world-renowned characters of the past 50 years. And I think that they will be punished or people will not be in a forgiving mood if they can't do him justice. So there's a lot of room for downside, but as you say, you know, gonna try to go in open. I think that it's important to remember that Illumination and Nintendo, they know their audience, they know what this is going to do, and they know who is going to see it. That being said, they have never pretended to be making products for anyone other than children. 
And I don't say that in a pejorative sense. Mario games are rated E for everyone. They are obsessed over by people like you and I who have grown up with them, but they are eternally marketed towards people who are picking up their very first game console, people who are going to see their very first movie in theaters for the first time. And I think that it's definitely a challenge of a movie like this to offer something to both sides. And maybe this could be something like the Lego movie where they actually succeed. But again, I have not had much reason to trust Illumination before. I am keeping a watchful eye out for the reviews and specifically the reviews from, I hate to use this word, but from gamers, from your IGNs, your game spots, people who recognize this as more than just a movie of colorful characters based on a video game, but people who recognize what they are seeing in the context of the history of that video game as well. Definitely. Do you want to speak on uh, your number eight? Sure. My number eight is called Dumb Money. This is another movie that does not currently have a release date. I believe it is being distributed by DreamWorks. It is directed by Craig Gillespie, who directed Cruella and I, Tanya. And it is the story of the subreddit Wall Street Bets essentially breaking Wall Street for a couple months last summer when the GameStop and AMC stocks went, to use their phrase, to the moon. When a bunch of nerds on Reddit who do not have significant stakes in the stock market cost a ton of hedge funds unprecedented amounts of money by making a stock rise that everybody bet on to fail. And anyone who knows me knows I love a good Wall Street movie. Margin Call is one of my favorite movies of the last decade. I absolutely love The Big Short, although I don't entirely love the movies that have tried to follow in its lead. I'm very excited to see how this can be brought into a cinematic language. I think that when you take true Wall Street stories and turn them into movies, they are often gripping. And considering the cast that we have here, like Paul Dano, Sebastian Stan, Seth Rogen, and Pete Davidson, I think this is probably going to be closer on the side of the big short than it is to margin call, which is fine. But I think this one's going to be a lot of fun and I'm really looking forward to watching it whenever it comes out. Well, you are doing me a service right now because this is not a film that was on my radar, but it's now one that I'm pretty excited for. That cast alone sounds really interesting. And it's a collection of actors I wouldn't have necessarily thought to group together, but I think can work for exactly what this film is. And I think it'll be really interesting to watch. I am always really interested when we get a ripped from the headlines film so shortly after they happen. Normally, I feel like we need to wait a little bit to put some distance between ourselves and events before studios will say, remember when this happened? But it's interesting to me to see a film that is about the precarious state of the exhibition industry. I mean, I'd, I'll be curious to see if this has a theatrical release, but if the film is about AMC going to the moon, I suppose that'll have to be about how AMC is kind of a ramshackle company, God bless their hearts. <laughs> so I think that that will be ironic to me, to sit down in a theater and have Nicole Kidman tell me heartbreak feels good, and then to watch a film about how AMC stock needed a bunch of, uh, you know, couch potato uh, millennial bros to 
to help kind of pull them up by their bootstraps. But I hope that this is a movie that can combine, you know, similar to kind of like a big short, those two tones of humor and ambition, but also having something to say. If it is more like the big short, even, even if it's half as good as the big short, then we'll still be in for a treat. Absolutely. And I should also mention the supporting cast includes Shailene Woodley, America Ferreira, Anthony Ramos from In the Heights, Nick Offerman, and Vincent D'Onofrio, just in case the other four were not enough to get people on board. All right. Well, you really you really filled out the room there. My number seven is going to take us to the stars and back because it is Wes Anderson's next feature film, Asteroid City, which I think is a great title. The man really has a way with titles. He always finds something that's perfectly representative of his ethos, of what the film is. I feel like the way that some people say that would be a great band name, there should be, that would be a great Wes Anderson movie, you know, the game. This film is going to release in June of this year. The premise, in 1955, students and parents from across the country gather for scholarly competition, rest, recreation, comedy, drama, and romance at a junior stargazer convention held in a fictional American desert town. So already, I think that that, that's got my attention. But what really jumps out at me is the cast. Wes Anderson is famous for his ability to pull together a large and talented ensemble, and you would need to count on all of your fingers and toes in order to be uh, to to include everybody that's here. So we have Jason Schwartzman, Scarlett Johansson, Tom Hanks, Rita Wilson, Jeffrey Wright, Tilda Swinton, Brian Cranston, Edward Norton, Adrian Brody, Rupert Friend, Maya Hawke, Steve Carell, Hung Chow, Willem Dafoe, Margot Robbie, Tony Revolori, and Jeff Goldblum, plus others that is a huge cast that's absurd think about all of those people and many of it's not like he's pulling unknowns out of here these are recognizable faces these are people we love these are some people who have worked with wes anderson before and some who are joining his uh, little troop here so i do wonder i don't know for sure if this is or isn't it feels a lot to me like an anthology film french dispatch his latest was another anthology i thought it was okay it wasn't my favorite one of his but i wonder if he's going to return to that same technique here it feels like that would make the most sense for accommodating a cast of this size and trying not to give anybody too short shrift but i really am very excited to see how this all comes together i think that it's just going to be another perfect little music box of a film perfectly set he loves going back to environments i think that would look great on the front of a lunchbox the poster for asteroid city is this great kind of grand canyon type uh, landscape with a billboard on the side of a road that just says asteroid city and that already is pretty evocative that already wants me you know i want to follow that road down to whatever's happening in the film i also think that it's just something that'll have a nice bit of heart he always has a lot of sentiment and a lot of emotion in his films they always tend to kind of make you appreciate togetherness you know the people that are in your life the things that animate you And coming off a couple of years that are definitely stoking the cynicism, I think, of the world at large, this is just kind of the perfect antidote and something that I hope can be really sincere and and uplifting in the spirit of some of his other films. So Asteroid City, can't wait. Wes Anderson is someone who I want to be excited for him. He carved out his own style of filmmaking that 
a lot of people have tried to adopt and no one has been successful at. I want every movie he makes to be a straight up masterpiece. His filmmaking technique and skill has only gotten better as his career has gone on. That being said, I do worry that his best scripts might be behind him. I think that Grand Budapest Hotel, Fantastic Mr. Fox, Moonrise Kingdom, and The Royal Tenenbaums are unimpeachable films. I love those movies. While I respected The French Dispatch, I was not enjoying it the most, and I did not respond especially to Isle of Dogs. I recognize the achievements that they are, but they definitely did not have that je ne sais quoi of the aforementioned films that I greatly enjoyed. I want to believe that this one will be an improvement for him. I must say, if it is an anthology, I'll be disappointed because I've never been a big fan of anthology films. But I'm hoping just by the pure novelty of Anderson's distinct style and outlook and way of constructing film in a way that is just synonymous with his own name, I'm hoping that this can be as good as we know that he is capable of making. It absolutely shocks me that Taika Waititi has not been cast in a Wes Anderson film yet, especially not in this one. Those two feel made for each other. And considering the number of things Waititi has performed in in the last five or six years, I truly would have expected him to be on Anderson's call sheet a long time ago. Yeah, and even if you look at the cast list for this film, so Scarlett Johansson appears to be the female lead, and she obviously worked with Taika in, perhaps they had some crossover in the MCU, but certainly Jojo Rabbit, where he directed her to an Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actress. You've seen Taika work alongside Jeff Goldblum. Again, Taika directed Jeff Goldblum in Thor Ragnarok. So you already have a few friends here in the Wes Anderson wheelhouse that I think they certainly could one day make that crossover. I would love to see them write something together as much as I would also love to see Taika I think as a performer he would fit right into this world I'm sensitive to a lot of the criticisms you shared about the anthology film about whether or not Wes Anderson's scripts have held up over the years and I don't know if Asteroid City is going to be the cure for all of those but I think that even if it falls into some of those traps, I feel like I could consume a Wes Anderson movie as a scrapbook. I feel like I could still get incredible enjoyment and tranquility just looking at his films as a series of still images because he is so beautiful, as you say, in how he constructs scenes and how he curates his settings and populates his worlds. It reminds me almost, I'm going to kind of struggle with the author's name, but if you remember Chris Van Olsen, who wrote Jumanji and the Polar Express, Chris Van Allsburg. Allsburg, there it is, Gilbert. See, that's why we're a Taika Weiss Anderson level pair here. We complement each other. I believe the book that inspired Jumanji was actually an anthology picture book of different kind of one-page illustrations and one caption underneath it. And I feel like Wes Anderson, you can pretty much do the same thing with his movies, where if you take any image, you can immediately understand the characters, you can understand what's happening, you can understand the world where they exist. So I'm very excited for him just to build a place that I can walk into. I think that he really creates a play box for his actors, and I'm excited to see the fun that they have together. So even if we're not going to plant another American flag on the moon in his filmography here, I still think that 
of this film is coming from someone I trust. I think it's going to be certainly unique, and I think it will be unlike anything else I see this year. The only caveat is that he does have another film coming out this year, Henry Sugar. I believe that's going to be a Netflix release, so we'll see about that. That is an adaptation of a Roald Dahl book, and there are many discourse-worthy threads to untangle there, especially from the past year. But I just think that this original story is something that excites me a little more, and I trust him enough to give him this chance. Definitely. And there's a little bit of a bittersweet note to this one as well, because due to health complications, I believe from COVID, in fact, this is Wes Anderson's first movie without Bill Murray in it. And in a way, a French dispatch is the end of them working together. That's kind of perfect. It's also sad because that's end of an era and we don't see Bill Murray in many things anymore other than Wes Anderson movies. So I'm, I'm hoping for the best for this one. I don't want to be too cruel to him because, again, I think his voice is so essential in the movie going culture right now. This one was not on my most anticipated because I just don't know what I'm going to be getting with it. You've got to open your mind to the possibilities, Gilbert. Yes. And arguably, if there is anyone who is most qualified to make an anthology film, it probably is Wes Anderson. Yeah. All right. Hit me with your number seven. My number seven is called Argyle. This is directed by Matthew Vaughn. It stars, who oh boy. Henry Cavill, Sam Rockwell, Bryce Dallas Howard, John Cena, Dua Lipa, Ariana DeBose, Rob Delaney, Brian Cranston, Catherine O'Hara, and Samuel L. Jackson. So, Oof. exactly. Yeah, give it to me. All we know about the premise is that it is about an amnesiac spy living a normal life until he gets pulled back into his old one. Now, some people's ears might be pricking up at that because that sounds suspiciously like the Bourne identity. And when you combine that with Matthew Vaughn, who did the Kingsman movies and the Kick-Ass movies, I'm seeing this trend of Matthew Vaughn deconstructing extremely popular genres of action movie into these incredibly fun, tongue-in-cheek, intelligent romps, essentially. And the idea of him taking on a Jason Bourne type of genre with that cast and with that outlook, I am extremely interested in what that could look like that does sound really exciting the most exciting thing to me is that this is one that was not even on my radar i had not heard of it it was certainly not on my list so this is sounds awesome i mean that cast is stacked and it does definitely pique my interest. The one thing that I am curious to get your thoughts on is whether you think that this is going to be more action or more comedy. Do you think that this is going to rely more on satire or more on action? If it's going to deconstruct sort of these type of stories. The genre listed under Google is that it's spy slash thriller. So I think it is predominantly going to be about the actual seriousness of its story but it's going to look at it through a satiric or comedic or tongue-in-cheek point of view. I guess it would depend on what you consider Kingsman. W would you call that a spy movie or would you call that a comedy? I would call it more of a spy movie, but it's a close battle. I agree. I, I think it'll be something very similar to that. And anybody who saw the first Kingsman movie knows that Matthew Vaughn can make some extremely fun action set pieces. So this is coming to Apple TV+. Plus sometime later this year and i will definitely be checking it out all right i'll mark my calendar number six my number six was you hurt my feelings so i am going on a buy here gilbert what is your number six my number six is gran turismo gran tell mimo 
this is the second movie coming this year that is not just named after an extremely famous video game IP, the other one, of course, being Tetris, but it's also not an adaptation of that world, but a story around its history. This is from Neil Blomkamp, who made District 9, as well as several other movies I was not particularly fond of, like Elysium and Chappie. But what essentially we have here is the big screen story of a teenage driver trying to become a race car driver by playing the video game Gran Turismo. So he starts by playing the racing game and eventually graduates into driving a race car himself. And that sounds incredibly fun to me. I'm also incredibly encouraged by the idea of Neil Blomkamp doing something, dear God, literally please anything other than his extremely generic, although iconically unique science fiction fair. I think District 9 was revolutionary, although I was not a particular fan of watching it, but he has an eye for world building and composition like nobody else. And the cast of this one includes David Harbour, Orlando Bloom, Jaiman Hansu, Archie Madekwe, Darren Barnett, and Thomas Kretschmann. I love the idea that we are seeing movies about video games that are not just trying to be adaptations of video game stories because Hollywood has finally learned that that does not work. I don't know if that's the lesson that Hollywood is taking away because we are seeing more and more big budget adaptations of video games directly, not purporting to be stories around video games but stories kind of that are those games again super mario sonic tetris i think as you pointed out is a good example of how they are looking at you know what games mean to people rather than just telling the game story but i think that this concept sounds great because i think it also manages to tap into what the spirit of gaming is. People go to that form of entertainment because it is transporting, it is interactive, it allows you to pick up and step into another life. And so the idea that a character might be doing that to influence their own life or change how they experience their own reality I think is really cool. It's also what people do with movies. So I think that there is that interesting meta element layered on top there. I think that the cast does sound really interesting. I am a little bit interested about the Neil Blomkamp side of it because I don't know what he would do if he's not doing the most kind of hardcore science fiction. Um, but it definitely sounds like an intriguing title. If anything, I like the idea of him not pigeonholing himself into one specific genre, but instead taking his talents and showing he can do more than just that. This one comes out August 11th in theaters. So it might have a little bit of time to itself to get some audience. Exactly. August historically has been a bit of a dumping ground in the summer season, but you also do have a few gems in there that deserve a little bit better than they've gotten in the past. But this is also, like you said, it's a video game story, but it is a sports story. It's an underdog story. David Harbour is playing the teenage driver's trainer. So I think this one's going to be a lot of fun. All right, so now time for the top five. Mine is the newest release from iconic director Christopher Nolan, and it stars every actor in Hollywood. It is Oppenheimer. Gilbert, I think you have this one as number three on your list. I really don't know where to begin, mostly because I don't know what to expect. This is a film where seemingly the title gives it all away. You know, Oppenheimer, this is 
a biopic, the story of arguably the most influential man of the 20th century. Obviously, we will be following the story of the Manhattan Project and the development of the atomic bomb at the end of World War II. So right there, I know what I'm going to see here, but I have no idea the story that it's going to tell. Nolan does love tragic figures. He does love haunted men. He does love people who are reaching to control forces beyond what they can reasonably hope to understand or tame. And this does combine a lot of those themes. I'm sure there will be plenty of bespoke suits in this film, but I I really have no idea. Even as someone who has studied some of the history here, I really don't know the story that he's going to tell. And that excites me the most, to see something that we know presented to us in a different way, to see how he is going to make a story out of one of the most controversial developments of human history, but I know that it'll be irresistible to watch. It's not something that I would have expected Christopher Nolan would do after Tenant or after Dunkirk. I wouldn't have thought that he would return to the same well of interpreting history, especially as it applies to Dunkirk. I wouldn't have thought after Tenet that he was going to go smaller. I'm sure there will be depictions of nuclear Armageddon, so it's hard to think of that as smaller than something he did in his last film. But I don't think that this is going to be a traditional action blockbuster in the way that Tenet tried to be. So I'm really just curious to see where Nolan locates his interest, how he structures the story, what he's going to do with a massive cast that he's assembled. And I hope that he can pull it together. But for me, that's the questions that fuel the anticipation. Because I don't know what I'm going to get from someone who is, speaking as a fan, sometimes predictable. As you said, this one is my number three. I... I'm excited for this one in a way I truly did not expect to be. Anybody who followed me over here from the YouTube channel, first of all, if you saw my first video about Christopher Nolan, my apologies, but you would also know that I have a pretty tenuous at best relationship with him as a figure in Hollywood, as a filmmaker, as a storyteller. I think that he is often one of the best when it comes to straight up directing of scenes and of actors. I think that he has so many movies that I wish he made more like them, but he also has a lot that I do not think work. He has movies that shoot for the stars and do not leave the ground for me. I understand the achievement that Interstellar or Dunkirk or Tenet represent, but I am not fans of any of those movies. That being said, this one looks closer in line to Dunkirk than it does to Tenet. Obviously, it's also a World War II story. Obviously, it is based on a true story. The thing about Nolan is he doesn't half-ass it. If he is making a movie, he is going out there and absolutely doing whatever it is the movie is about. In this case, apparently, it is detonating a nuclear frickin' bomb. Now, obviously, he's not in possession of actual nuclear material, but I think we can expect to see, at the very least, a gigantic explosion. My curiosity around this one comes from, one, what is the outlook, and two, what is the structure that this movie is going to be shaped in? Is this going to be another manipulation of time? Is it going to be told out of order, jumping back and forth between different time periods? Or is it going to be something more straightforward that just tells a very interesting story very well? Also, is it going to be, hell yeah, we did it, we made the bomb, we won the war? 
Or is it going to be full on, I am become death, the destroyer of worlds? Given Nolan's nationality, his appreciation for history and for attempting to tackle complex themes in his movies, I think it'll probably be the latter. That being said, I made a 45-minute video about how Christopher Nolan has some truly terrific ideas, but absolutely no perspective on them. I think that this is probably going to be the biggest movie of the summer, because Nolan always draws in a large box office, no matter what the premise is. Well, except for Tenet, which had some pretty extenuating circumstances. But Nolan also goes out of his way to make his movies what he calls more immersive or realistic, but what other people call exhausting. His sound mixing is an infuriating part of his last few movies. He shoots everything on IMAX cameras, and his movies look absolutely stunning. But he also gets a little bit up his own ass about the significance of these kinds of choices. And there's a lot of times you wish someone would just tell him no. But because he has had so many successful films and films that won so many awards, he has the clout in Hollywood that every director wishes they had. He gets to make whatever movie he wants, whatever way he wants to make it. And if the studios don't like it, as we're seeing now, he will go somewhere else. This is his first movie working outside of Warner Brothers, at the very least since Batman Begins, but possibly even before that. This one is being put out by Universal, and there was a lot of commotion made about the bidding war for his next movie and what stipulations they had to agree to, like how long it would run in theaters, what he'd be able to shoot it on, how long the movie could be, how long before it goes to streaming. I respect the love Christopher Nolan has for the old ways of filmmaking and movie going, but I also don't want his ego to eclipse the stories that he's trying to tell. Yeah, I think that sometimes with his filmmaking, he just can't get out of his own way. And I think that he sometimes has that mindset of I alone can fix it, where even if it's good natured, he'll say that where he might have the perspective that he can go for something and make it work that might be too convoluted or highfalutin. And not always the case. Not all of his films are a full resounding success. I feel very passionate about a few of his films that I really enjoy. And that does kind of make me wonder how capable he is of being able to switch his styles because it feels like his style doesn't have any flexibility it feels like he's hardened into his ways more than he's arrived at his technique and i think as you say he's one of the best at what he does he makes films that are visually enthralling he is a great director of actors actors love working with him and i do think that he has really fascinating ideas but i just don't know where he wants to take them so many of his characters are reminiscent of each other he definitely has a type um, both in terms of his leading men in terms of the stories that he likes to tell and this is a bit divergent from that pattern it stays true in in a couple of meaningful ways but i do think that interestingly it's not just his first film outside of warner brothers i do think that it's his first film that isn't fundamentally based in action so i'm interested to see how he's going to bridge that how he's going to handle something that is more purely dramatic i think that this will be a little bit more like insomnia of any of his films in terms of maybe how it has to be structured because i really can only think of one set piece and i think we all know what it's going to be before we go into it so my big question is he's probably not going to open with the explosion of the atomic bomb so where is he going to locate the bounds of this history is it 
the process that led up to the first successful test? Is it the actual deployment against Japan in World War II? What is he saying there? Because that was essentially him defining what his legacy is. Is Oppenheimer's legacy that he developed nuclear technology? Is it that he killed hundreds of thousands of people and ushered in a new era of warfare? These are the questions that Nolan is going to be wrestling with. I don't know how he's going to answer them. I don't know if he's going to answer them at all. I hope that he does. I hope that if he's going to make a movie about the most significant technological development of the 20th century, he has the respect and the dignity to put on it that this was not an objective leap forward, that there was a lot of horror that was caused by this discovery and this development. As you said, we have the set piece. We're going to have the explosion at some point. I would assume it's going to be towards the end, but knowing the way Nolan structures his films, who knows? But what I want is for this to be a movie about the process and about the ethics of everything that went into the development of the atomic bomb. I would love for this to be rather than focused around creative avant-garde cutting and playing and manipulating time. I want it to be focused on the problem solving of actually doing it, as well as the conversations that the people had while doing it. I want it to be a dialogue heavy movie that is fun to watch and makes me think as I watch it. Now, maybe that's a bit too much to ask. Maybe that is too much to hope for a movie to be before going into it. I want to see Nolan be not afraid to stick to genre for a bit. I I want to see him just make a movie about this that is good because the story is good and not because it's Christopher Nolan doing it. Well, I think that his imprint will definitely be visible here. I don't think that there will be any doubt that we're watching a Christopher Nolan movie, but I hope that he is able to evolve or surprise us in these ways. Because I think, interestingly, this does have the potential to be his best film. I think that if he does nail this, I think that he's working with a cast of, not that he ever works with slouches or people that phone it in, but I think that he's really working with a cast who are familiar with him I mean, how many movies has Cillian Murphy uh, made with Christopher Nolan that now he's finally... Killian, excuse me. Killian Murphy, how many movies has he made that he's finally at the center? He definitely knows how to work with Chris, what Chris is looking for, the perspective that he has, you know, to say nothing of the fact that he's a great actor, but then you have Robert Downey Jr., an entire other host of great people here. You have an incredibly significant historical story. I think that this could really be a landmark moment for him. I really hope he rises to that challenge because even if it's not, I'm sure that this will be a serviceable experience. I'm sure that I'll walk away finding something to like about it or respect about it, but I really think that, no pun intended, he could split the atom with this one. Well said. This one I'm definitely going to be keeping an eye on. At the very least, it's going to be something that's not to be missed in theaters. No, sir. No, sir. All right. Talk to me. What are we up to? Number five? Number five. My number five is a little movie called Martin Scorsese's The Killers of the Flower Moon. This is my uh, numero uno. Okay. As we said, this is coming from Martin Scorsese. It stars Leonardo DiCaprio, Jesse Plemons, Robert De Niro, Lily Gladstone, and Brendan Fraser. It is a period piece, what sounds like a crime mystery thriller, essentially about the birth of the FBI. I cannot say that I've read the book that this is based on, but considering the cast, considering you have both of Marty's favorites in this movie, as well as the one who seems to be his new favorite, Jesse Plemons, 
there's been a lot of hype and anticipation and speculation for this one. This is coming to Apple, I believe this October. It is first premiering at Cannes in May. And it looks like Marty's swinging for the fences again. And I cannot wait to see it. He is one of, if not the most storied living filmmaker at the very least in the history of the Academy Awards. And when you look at the cast, when you look at the premise, when you look at just the pedigree of everybody involved in this movie from the director down, it's clear that this is going to be one of the most talked about movies of this year, at least in film watching circles. You could not be more right. I think that in this list, we've already talked about a number of celebrated filmmakers or filmmakers we're really excited about. Uh, Wes Anderson, Christopher Nolan being two top of mind examples. But Martin Scorsese breathes rarefied air. He is in a league of his own with maybe five people uh, that are his living contemporaries and peers. So I think that this will rightfully be an event only because his name is attached. But I think that if you want to walk down the list of talent that we have here, you could pretty much sell a movie on almost any one of these people. Could you imagine if someone walked up to you and said, hey, do you want to go see the new Leo movie? Do you want to go see the new Robert De Niro movie? Do you want to go see the new Jesse Plemons movie? People already have a really strong relationship with the first two. I think that in the past five years especially, Jesse Plemons has emerged as a new favorite, like you said. So I, I think that there's definitely, again incredible talent here to tell a great story. I actually have read this book. I am a sucker for history. I am a sucker for a period piece. And I think that this is a story that's beautifully matched to Marty's outlook. And I also think that it's something that is almost impossible to believe until you see it. Historically, there are a lot of really interesting themes here. I don't know that Scorsese's ever made a Western, so I think that this is really excited for a guy who has made his bones doing incredible genre work, mostly in the space of crime films, to pivot over to the other pivotal American genre. I think is really fascinating and I'm excited to see how he will weave elements of the Western into this film. I'm also really excited because a lot of this movie, without giving away any of the events, is a story about people history has forgotten about. Um, as much as it, you know, Robert De Niro and Leo at the center of this film... It is a story about a Native American reservation, and many of the characters, many of the people who were involved in the production were Native Americans, many of them from the Osage Nation that is depicted in the film. So I'm really excited for that, to see this story get a broad audience and come to life. I think that a lot of people will come because they're interested in the FBI angle, but I think that there will be a much more human thread that they don't recognize at first that will really be the defining piece of it for them. So I, I've been jazzed about this since I read the book and I heard they were adapting it. I think that it's in great hands. I cannot wait to see this. One of my favorite Scorsese genre movies is Shutter Island. I think that movie is fantastic. And right now I believe there's only one promotional image from Killers of the Flower Moon that currently has been released. But when I look at DiCaprio in that picture, it brings to mind a lot of what he kind of put himself through for Shutter Island. I do not know the story that this movie is going to be covering, but I'm curious if this is going to be something that maybe mixes his penchant for true stories and crime stories along with his flair for genre and atmospheric storytelling. I certainly hope that it is, because Martin Scorsese's definitely done period pieces before. He just pointed out Shutter Island, which is a great one. He's also got Gangs of New York, which I think mileage varies for a lot of people. 
Martin does tell a lot of true stories. Goodfellas is inspired by a true story. Um, and one thing that I hope is that he actually does cling to the history. One thing we see with a lot of other directors who attempt to use history in the service of their film is that they use history kind of like as a photo backdrop without actually meaningfully engaging. I mean, he read the book and then he decided he was going to make this film. So hopefully he will remain faithful to the details that made this so interesting to him in the first place. Because again, I think that that's truth is almost always stranger than fiction, as we know. I think that he appreciates that. I think that he's really interested in the human dimension here. And so hopefully that will kind of draw him to stay true to the actual human characters behind this event. And so I think that he will definitely find ways for the genre to come into it. But I hope that he does balance that history. I really hope he holds true to that. At the very least, Leo is one of, if not the most exciting actor in the business across every generation. Mm -hmm. He has made so many movies with Scorsese. They work so well together. And frankly, Leo never half-asses it. So if he is making a movie with Marty again, you know it's going to be a tour de force of a performance. Not to mention the recent Academy Award winner, Brendan Fraser, continuing his victory lap, and God bless him for it. Yeah, anytime he gets to swoop through, I'm into it. But I think this is something that's going to surprise a lot of people. I think that people are going to have a lot of preconceived notions about this film because they think they know what Martin Scorsese is going to give them, whether it's because they think they already have an idea of what this chapter in America's past looks like. And I think that it's really going to throw them for a curve. And so I'm really excited for us to just be able to get into it. I want it here now. Yes, you're number four. My number four. Oh, wow. I just did so much talking. I forgot it's actually my turn. All right. Well, Gilbert, I know that you have this film on your list. I know it for a fact. There's a pretty significant chance it's your number one. Do you want to tell me what this film is? It's Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part One. How much of the theme song do you think I can hum before we risk a copyright strike? Only one way to find out. Do, 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 do. I think I'm, actually, I think that was, uh, I had to stop because, not because I was afraid of copyright, but because I was starting to do The Incredibles, but, <laughs> um, but hey, Brad Bird, it's all connected. It's true. It is. Yeah. So Gilbert, you are really the one who introduced me to this, this universe. I had seen maybe one or two of the Mission Impossible films before we met, but it was you who sat me down and said we had to watch all the titles. They are awesome. I love them. They are unique within the world of action films because I feel that for the most part they are actually action. I feel like when we say action we mean it as a shorthand for combat and I love movies like John Wick, you know, whatever Quentin Tarantino wants to do. I will watch that all day. But this is a film where you can actually marvel at what a human being can do with their body without trying to kill someone. That comes in the delicious package of Tom Cruise, who is willing to put himself in danger for his art time and time again. I can't imagine what he's going to do this time. I'm sure there will be some jumping out of a plane or, you know, into a active volcano or something but these are movies that i go into thinking it's going to be a popcorn movie i'm going to sit down and have my body completely riddled with adrenaline and be able to walk away and say like wow that was great i want to go for a jog or i want to go uh steal a declaration of independence or something so i'm really excited just because i know that whatever this movie is it's going to electrify me i can't wait 
for this movie. You're 100% right. This is my number one. And I will explain why it's my number one when we get to my number two. You'll see. But this is possibly my favorite ongoing franchise in any media. What Tom Cruise is willing to put himself through for the sake of making the best movie he possibly can is something that we do not appreciate enough as a culture. The things that he puts his life and body and everything on the line for. Say what you will about him as a person, but he 100% cares about these movies. And they hit one hell of a stride when they found Christopher McQuarrie and he started directing all of them, starting with Rogue Nation, which is currently my favorite of the series. Like you said, it doesn't even matter what the plot of the movie is. We know that this ties back a lot to the first one. We know that it is going to be a part one to the finale of the series, at least as far as Tom Cruise is concerned, as far as Ethan Hunt is participating in them. I know that there is a train involved. I know that he jumps off a motorcycle over a cliff and base jumps down to the bottom of a massive ravine. I don't know why. I don't care. I'm here to watch it. I saw Fallout in IMAX and it was an amazing experience. It doesn't even matter to me what the story of Ethan Hunt even represents because let's be honest, everything is just an excuse to get from one set piece to the next. But at the same time, the Christopher McQuarrie movies have found a way to be that while also being a riveting spy thriller or action drama. Yeah. Um... For me, there's no easier way that a film can win me over than having a train in it. So if there is another train action set piece at the center or even anywhere in this film, I will be thrilled. As far as returning elements from previous in the series, I'm most excited to see A, our fabulous We Don't Deserve Her, Rebecca Ferguson, swooping back in as Ethan Hunt's possible love interest, possible rival, possible ally, Ilsa Faust. She was a character who jumped off the screen in Ghost Protocol, is it, that she makes her appearance? Rogue Nation. Rogue Nation. I mean, that that is her film. She steals it from Tom Cruise, if such a thing is possible. So if she's going to have an expanded role, if she's going to return, I'm so excited. I'm interested to see Vanessa Kirby. She was also very captivating when she appeared earlier in the series. There's just so much to be excited for here. In 2022, we saw Tom Cruise save cinema with Top Gun Maverick. Made a billion dollars solely at the domestic box office, I think, before you even factor in international returns. If this time he's going to be giving us more Mission Impossible, he's going to be giving us bigger stunts than we've ever seen. I'm just so excited to see how they're going to do this as over the top as possible. And if this is a part one, you know it's going to end on some crazy business to set up part two. So what is even going to happen here? What just, just let's get right to it. I don't know. I don't care. I am just here for it. Similar to Top Gun Maverick, this movie was put on ice for an entire year. This was ready to go last September, and then they delayed it all the way to this July. Now, I get it. September is historically a dumping ground after the big blockbusters of the summer before the heavy hitters of the fall. But my God, have I been wanting to see this movie ever since they announced it. And I am so freaking jazzed to see this come in smack in the middle of July. Tell me about your next pick. My next pick is something I know almost nothing about, but sight unseen, it is going straight to number four on my list. And this is a movie called Civil War, directed by my guy, Alex Garland. It stars Kirsten Dunst, Wagner Mora, Stephen McKinley Henderson, and Kaylee Spaney. I have been 
absolutely fascinated by Alex Garland's filmography ever since Ex Machina. I have to see Dread because I know he shadow directed that. And I have to see 28 Days Later because I know he wrote that. But from Ex Machina to Annihilation to the FX series Devs, which did not get the consideration it deserved. I just know that when I watch one of his movies, not not only am I going to see something I've never seen before, but I'm going to see it in a way that I'd never considered before. His last movie, Men, was a bit more tepid on reception. I was not the biggest fan of it. It swings for the fences in a lot of ways I was not hoping he'd be going for. But my hope with Civil War is that this is something closer to Annihilation than it was to Men. And I am extremely excited to see anything Alex Garland puts his name on. Yeah, he's definitely one of my favorite working directors today. I was a big fan of Ex Machina. I was a big fan of Annihilation. I still have to see men, but I have heard a lot of people speak similarly as you that it wasn't as refined or it wasn't as sharp as those other two titles. I think here that he does have a really great chance to return to form. What excites me is that he's not just a science fiction director. Most of his films are also firmly planted in the horror or the thriller space. He's not taking you to the stars. He wants to make you look within as much as he is showing you visions of the future. And I think that in order to do science fiction really well, and in order to do horror really well, you have to have a effective social awareness, or you have an effective awareness of the society that you're coming from. Because I think, again, if you want to create a futuristic world, you have to have a good grasp of the one that you're in or the one that your world came from. If you want to make a story that scares people, you have to understand who your audience is or who people are and the things that make them look over their shoulder in their everyday lives. So I think that he is an incredibly insightful filmmaker. I think that he has incredible perspective as a filmmaker. I think that he's able to translate that perspective in very fascinating ways on screen. And so for Civil War, we don't really know a lot about it. We know a little bit of the cast. I don't think we really are too privy to the concept even at this point, but I'm very excited to see what he has to say, what themes he's going to address, and how he is going to keep me up at night. Amen to that. Um, And this one was actually not on my list. I was afraid that especially in our top fives that we would just be on a repetition fest, but I feel like we're doing pretty good, Gilbert. Pat ourselves on the back for being creative and having distinct taste. I agree. Here's to being outside the box. That's right. All right. Well, speaking of going outside the box, like unboxing or taking it out of the box, my number three celebrates life in plastic because it's a Barbie. I don't think people are ready for this. I don't think that people are taking this as seriously as it deserves or as it's going to merit. But I think that this is going to be one of the biggest movies of the year. I think it's going to perform very well at the box office. I wouldn't be surprised if it gets some significant Oscar play. I'm just really excited for it. On the one hand, this is a movie about one of the most iconic toys of the past 50 years, three generations. And whenever you have a movie about a product, that's kind of questionable, especially a movie about something that has a cultural shorthand. If you say it's like a Barbie girl, it's like a Ken doll that has meaning separate and apart from what the toy or the item actually is. So I think that this film has a lot of cultural expectation to work against. But even with that being said, every leading indicator I have tells me that this is going to be pure diesel. Gilbert, I know that you're not a big trailer guy and I don't want to allow myself to 
to get suckered in by a trailer here, but I thought the Barbie trailer that they released maybe a month or two ago was spectacular. And I thought that that was a signal to people that they were trying to make something smarter than just a movie about a girl who wants to have the best house or the best clothes or the best boyfriend or whatever it is. I think that this movie is probably going to be akin to a a Knives Out or a Ryan Johnson picture in terms of its creativity, but also in the way that it kind of deconstructs our expectations. I think that if you wanted to make a cheap popcorn plastic film, you would not have picked Greta Gerwig, who is one of the most exciting directors working right now and certainly someone who is one of the most clarion voices on femininity and, you know, women's experience in the world today. So I think that that she is going to make something that is smarter, that is going to be a little bit of a Barbie unwrapped, deconstructing, you know, some of our ideas about beauty or about women kind of in the modern world. But I also think that just beyond that, this movie looks colorful. It looks fun. It looks like it's got a lot of sound. It looks like it's going to have a lot of motion. It's got a bunch of movie stars and people that look great on screen. I think that this movie is going to do a beautiful balancing act between intelligent, story-driven, theme-driven entertainment, but also just pure summer fun. I think that Barbie is going to be one of the highest achievements of 2023, which is not a position I ever would have taken prior to this podcast. (laughs) This one did not make my list. And I did see the trailer, I believe, when I saw Avatar The Way of Water. So I do have some sense of what it looks like, what it sounds like, what outlook it's taking. That being said, there is still so much unknown. As you said, the question hanging over this movie is, why did Greta Gerwig take this project? She is one of the most exciting filmmakers currently in the business. She has two movies under her belt, both nominated for Best Picture. And everybody agrees that she just knows what the hell she's doing. So did she take this movie because she has a genuine idea of how to make not your average Barbie movie about Barbie? Or did she take it because she needs to finance whatever her next Little Women is? I genuinely don't know. But even if it's the latter, Greta Gerwig has such a particular outlook and is so skilled at what she does that even if that is the case, I believe that Barbie is going to be something interesting even provocative. This is currently facing off in a staring contest with Oppenheimer in the middle of July for box office attention. I genuinely don't know if I think Warner Brothers will be blinking on this. I don't know if they want to stick it to Christopher Nolan after he ditched them after the HBO Max snafu. I don't know if they think that pushing this back or forward will be a sign of weakness because they don't want to compete against Oppenheimer. It's really hard to say. There is so much we don't know about this movie. All I know is a blind person could have cast Margot Robbie to star in a Barbie movie for every reason you can possibly imagine. But Ryan Gosling as Ken is inspired. Ryan Gosling is quite possibly the best actor currently working at calibrating his performance to the movie he is in. He has so many different faces he can put on. He has so many different tones he can radiate that for something as fun and silly as this, I'm very excited to see how he explores the camp, frankly, of the Ken character in the Barbie mythos. While this one's not on my list, there's no way I'm not going to be seeing it. Definitely. And one thing I think about this movie, which has been true about a lot of the movies that we've already picked, I think it'll probably be true of 
some of the remaining films we have yet to discuss. One thing that I think about 2023 is the possible return of the movie star. I think there's been a lot of discussion in the past few years about how traditional movie stardom is fading away and how it's harder to have a single actor-actress carry a picture. We saw at the Academy Awards a few weeks ago that there it was not exactly a star-studded evening, although there were certainly a number of talented famous actors and below-the-line people there. But But here you have a movie that it's not just Barbie and Ken. There's multiple Barbies and multiple Kens that will appear in this movie, as I understand it. That they have different interpretations of the character. And on the one hand, I think that that's great so that multiple people can see themselves in this toy or in this world that's existed for some time. But I also think that's just an excuse to get more telegenic, photogenic, charismatic exciting people on screen because I think that there is a recognition by studios that yeah people are going to the movies to see the faces they like the people that they have a relationship with and I think that Barbie is really going to give it to them I think that Barbie is going to say hey we're going to take all these people that you love all these people that you know can be fun and we're just going to let them have fun for you so that's something that's really exciting to me I think as you said Ryan Gosling does a great job matching himself to the room and to the people that he's working with I think that he's very generous in that respect but I just think that from top to bottom this is going to be a great movie star vehicle I think that this is really going to have to rely on the strengths of its actors in order to succeed and I'm excited to see that Without a doubt. And I think a big part of the question surrounding this movie is, as you said, Barbie is quite possibly one of the most iconic pieces of toy media of the last 50 years. This is a character or a property that has defined childhood for generations of girls. And arguably, it set the conversation about gender roles back decades because of everything that was being reinforced by what girls play with and what boys play with, what is sold with Barbie and what isn't. And at the very least, there's no way Greta Gerwig doesn't know that. So I'm curious how self-effacing Mattel is willing to be with this property that has obviously had several straight-to-DVD movies for the primary demographic of Barbie toys, but this is the first time it's being brought into the public consciousness for adults in a very long time. And I think exactly for that reason that you're saying that this will have incredible success at the box office. It is in a thousand yard stare with Oppenheimer, but frankly, I'm giving this one to Barbie. I think that Barbie is going to be the winner of this weekend. That may not be the conventional wisdom because a Nolan movie about the atomic bomb does certainly have an allure. I think that the Nolan bros will turn out hard. They have a reputation. I also think that even if Oppenheimer wins the first weekend, which is possible, I think that Barbie is going to have more legs. I think that this summer there will be families that are looking for something that they can watch together or I think that families will be looking for something they can do with their kids and I think it'll be more likely that mom or even a grandma will be willing to go and take their kids to a Barbie movie before certainly before they go see Oppenheimer. I also think that there's other people possibly those adults who are looking for a drama or who might be interested in the Oscar buzz of a Nolan film who will say that they'll wait for that film to come to streaming before they watch it whereas I think other people will say oh it's fun to go and see Barbie you know or it's funny or more people will be 
able to see it. I don't think that it'll be rated R. I think that it'll probably be rated PG-13 at best, so I think that'll allow it to pick up a wider audience. And I think that it does have the reputation and the awareness going back generations that people will show up for it, or at least they'll be open to seeing it. So I really think that Barbie has a lot working for it in a way that people might not be giving it credit for. The face-off between Barbie and Oppenheimer is possibly the most interesting conversation at the movies this entire year. And all I can say is, I don't think anyone knows what's going to happen if those two movies release on the same day and anyone who does say they know is lying. Mm Mm-hmm. I hope that they don't switch. I hope that neither films move off of their real estate right now. They almost certainly will because I think that while the box office is growing and it's kind of getting back to the strength it once had, I don't know if it can support the blockbuster opening weekend for two films that Universal and Warner Brothers want to have here. But I also think that what better example could you imagine of counter-programming? There really could be in that weekend something for everybody. And this is going to be what, a few weeks after Mission Impossible comes out? So you'll have in theaters a crowd-pleasing family-friendly action movie that you can take your kids to you have a prestige period piece about the atomic bomb and you have a wild barbie movie there's something for everybody in cinemas super huge content eat your heart out absolutely but also studios don't believe in something for everyone they want to be the king of the mountain every single weekend if i were warner brothers I would start trying to pitch Barbie to festivals. If I knew what I had and I knew I wanted people to see it, I would be wanting to find a slot to push that in for people to see it at least two months ahead of the release day and start building word of mouth. Well, this is something that I will definitely be excited to watch and we'll have to do some countdowns to this uh, epic showdown in cinema over the summer. Gilbert, what's your number three? My number three is Oppenheimer, which we discussed. So last movie on my list, because Mission Impossible is number one, is the upcoming Netflix film David Fincher's The Killer. There is almost nothing known about this film other than the director and the star, who is Michael Fassbender alongside Tilda Swinton. And it is based on a French graphic novel series of the same name. This is reuniting David Fincher with his screenwriter for Seven, Andrew Kevin Walker. And that is enough just to get me. David Fincher is my guy. I will be there for anything he puts his name on. He's someone who I just get so excited every time he puts a movie out because you know that if he is putting it out, it is exactly the version of it that he wants you to see. And I understand that his movies aren't for everybody. I understand that he plays to a bit of a demographic as far as the darkness and the subterfuge and the violence of his movies is often less spectacular than it is shocking but he has created an expectation for himself that if he is making another movie about a serial killer you know that it's going to be at least fun to watch especially since this is the first time we'll be seeing michael fassbender in a few years since the previous serial killer movie the snowman which the less words said about that one the better yeah i know that that one does not have a great reputation but as far as a david fincher movie i think that this is going to kill it i've been purposefully trying to avoid any real talk of it (laughs) i didn't even plan that look at that see that's what a perfect alignment yeah i don't want to have this one spoiled for me in any way just because with these movies again it is almost like an m night Shyamalan level of twist or level of did you see that coming can you appreciate that so i don't really want to know too much about it as much as you know anything is actually out in the world by now but 
for me, the most thrilling thing isn't necessarily the return of Fincher, but the return of Michael Fassbender. He's an actor that I've always really enjoyed. I think that he's a very smart actor. I think that he's an actor who's able to do drama. I think that he can kind of do some comedy when he wants to. He can be a little bit more funny. I think that he can be a great leading man. And I understand. I think that he said he took a few years off for family to kind of help participate, you know, in raising his daughter, which more power to him, you know, you do you, man. But I think that he is a great screen presence. I think that he's really captivating actor. I think he's a very intelligent actor. And so I think that he will fit perfectly into the David Fincher project. I think that this one's going to be really exciting. The Netflix of it all is really interesting to me as well, because Netflix has had such success in the past few years with true crime, not just in the Jeffrey Dahmer style docudramas they make, but also straight up just documentaries about true crime incidents. So I think that this movie is really playing to that strength of, hey, we have an audience that eats up this serial killer psychological content. Let's let them have it. Yet another reason for the Academy not to exclude Netflix movies from best picture consideration because then we don't get to see david fincher at the oscars and nobody wants that i think the killer is going to be really exciting when's the release for that that's kind of closer to the winter tbd i I believe that's going to be closer to the fall i I don't think they've wrapped filming yet but usually once he starts filming he releases in the same year okay well that's a good sign so my number two the only film that we've yet to discuss in some fashion is a part two, and that's Dune. I have a lot of faith in this one. I was a fan of Dune part one, but like many people, it felt like it wasn't quite ripe yet. It definitely felt like a prologue or kind of like some table setting, even when there was action or turns of the plot. I thought that they introduced the characters in a very compelling way. That was the movie that really sold me on Timothy Chalamet, where now I think of him as as really some of the gold standard in terms of young Hollywood talent. And I'm really excited for him to get more of the leading performance. He certainly was the lead of Dune Part 1, but I think it was a lot about graduating from child to adult. Now I'm really excited to see him as an operator, as a leader, as someone who is going to be trying to take charge of his destiny here rather than becoming conscious of it and responding to it. And similarly, I'm really excited to see Zendaya. You know, again, she had a limited role in the first one. She was almost practically a teaser for the second film. I feel like so much of Dune Part 1 was saying like, oh, well, we're laying threads that are going to pay off in two. And that's just the nature of Hollywood storytelling these days. But I am ready for that payoff. I'm ready to see Zendaya get into more movies and get the silver screen recognition that she has already rightfully earned in the TV world. Just because she is such a a fantastic presence, an incredible performer. I really love seeing her every time. But again, this movie is rich in in stars. You've got not just the two of them who are some of the hottest items in Hollywood right now. You've also got Florence Pugh, Austin Butler, and Christopher Walken joining this cast on top of some of the returning folks like uh, Dave Bautista, for example. So I anticipate that this will probably be some grand space fantasy that there will be some battle, that there will be some formation of alliances and people kind of trying to band together against some kind of superior foe. Dune is responsible for shaping the modern science fiction story as we understand it. So I think that we may see some things that feel familiar. Curious to see how Denis Villeneuve will take those threads which are now foundational and present them to us as revolutionary. And just his direction, the way that he approaches these stories, I'm really excited again 
This is a story he said he's always wanted to tell or he's been very excited about telling. So let's see how he makes it all come together. This is a movie that I will be putting into my body as soon as I can. Sights Unseen, I think that this and the Super Mario Brothers movie are going to be in an absolute knife fight for the biggest box office successes of the year. I was one of the people who was a little bit more tepid on Dune Part 1. It's not that I think it's a bad movie. It did not come together in the way that I hoped it would. It felt like it was kind of propped up on sticks to me. The only performances that felt even worth talking about were Jason Momoa and Rebecca Ferguson. And that's not what I want. Denis Villeneuve is probably the most interesting science fiction filmmaker currently working. Blade Runner 2049 and Arrival, I think, are absolute masterpieces. Be careful. We just really, we got to take back all the back padding we gave Alex Garland like three picks ago. You're not wrong, but at the same time, Villeneuve is in a league of his own. They're making two very different kinds of movie, and one of them is getting a lot more attention. I'm praying for this to be good. I'm praying for this to give me the excitement and joy that I did not experience watching part one. I'm hoping that because part one was all about setting up what this character is, what this world is, and what this conflict is, all of that is out of the way. And now I can see some genuine good character building, storytelling, science fiction world building. Because the thing that I think Denis Villeneuve does better than anybody else is the depth of his characters matches the scope of his movie's ideas. That is what makes Arrival in 2049 such important movies to me. I did not feel that with Dune Part 1. I felt distant from almost every single character. And if this is the way he wants to spend his next decade with Dune sequels and spinoffs and HBO Max series, I hope that is worth his actual talent because I would hate for someone as exciting as him to be locked into this world that, I'm sorry, is probably my least favorite movie of his for the foreseeable future. It's certainly an interesting, dare I call it a dalliance for him, because he has someone who has really liked coming in and telling these sort of original stories. And the stories that he has told until now, Arrival in 2049, did have a kind of a big science fiction angle. But when I think of Denis Villeneuve, I think of him as kind of down to earth. I think of him as the guy that made Sicario or Prisoners or something like that. These stories that are definitely intense, but that are fundamentally about real people. And that's what makes a science fiction interesting is that he's able to introduce kind of grounded characters into these unbelievable worlds and so that's what gives them depth and a sense of reality but this is him doing the franchise thing he did 2049 which i really enjoyed i think it might be better than the original blade runner which is a film i like a lot but the fact that he would kind of put a lot of these ambitions on pause so that he can do his conversion of franchise ip i want to know how much he will move forward with that i don't think he will i think that he's probably pretty bitter at warner brothers especially because of how the release of dune part one unfolded and i think that there was some unresolved questions about whether or not there would even be a dune part two i think that they were waiting to see how the first one performed so i think that he'll probably say like look i took this horse as far as i needed it to go I had Warner Brothers produce the two films I wanted to make, especially now in a world where we don't know what HBO will become. We don't know what Warner is going to look like. I don't think he'll say, I'm going to stick around and make all this TV. I think that he'll probably just give them the foundations of something and walk away. As far as the actual movie is concerned, I think that it is very impressive. I think that there's nothing really like it that we can compare to. I think it is kind of epic filmmaking on a scale that we don't really get anymore. 
and I think that he is a director you can really trust with the impeccable technical execution that the, that they require. So this is a movie uh, that I would I would cross deserts for. Go to Arrakis for this. Well said. My hopes are high, but my expectations are low. Not Again, not because I think it's going to be a bad movie, just I do not think I'm going to respond to it in the way that I want to. Given the troubled history Frank Herbert's novel has had getting put on screen with movies that made the novel be considered unadaptable, I respect Villeneuve's passion for this material. I just wonder if his talents might be better served. And I'm very curious, given all the earthquakes that have happened at Warner Brothers in the last seven to nine months or so, I wonder if that relationship has soured since David Zaslav took over Warner Media. And I wonder if that is going to affect the release of Dune Part 2, the production of Dune Part 2, and frankly, Villeneuve's freedom to make Dune Part 2 how he wants to make it. Well, we will have these questions answered for us on November 10th, I believe. Maybe a day or so earlier. Uh, I think there was a point you wanted to make about your number two and your number one film and why they had that placement. Do you want to let us in on the secret? Yes. The reason why The Killer is my number two while Mission Impossible is my number one is because The Killer is something I know absolutely nothing about. My anticipation there is solely rooted in just how much I trust the people working on it, whereas Mission Impossible is something where I know what I'm going to get. That doesn't mean I necessarily think that Mission Impossible is going to be my favorite movie of the year. I'm hoping it will. I hope every movie I watch is my favorite movie of the year. But I did not feel that I could put something there is such a gray fog around as my most anticipated when I don't know what shape it's going to take. That's a good point. I think that sometimes that uncertainty breeds anticipation that you want to have those questions answered for you, but other times you're unsure of whether or not that means you're actually going to like this thing. It's unsure of what you're going to expect. How do you know you're excited for something if you don't know what it is? So I think that is a really good point, and I think that as we've just talked about all the things we're excited for, we could have gotten it completely wrong. There could be some great films that we have not talked about at all. Some of the films that we are excited about could turn to dust in our hands. Maybe the lists will wind up being being reversed by the time we get to the end of the year so this will be a cool thing to revisit for some of the reasons that you've just pointed out of we really we're walking into the fog i think that we will be pleased with what we find but yeah it's difficult for us to know sometimes and there's so many movies coming out this year that we didn't mention things like michael mann's ferrari things like ridley scott's napoleon a whole bunch of movies coming out from undisputed auteurs who we did not get a chance to talk about this year so maybe what we listed could be some of the best movies of the year maybe we didn't include any of them and we're still Sleeping on some genuine masterpieces. We we don't know, but it's a lot to be excited for uh, between now and December. One thing that's interesting to me, kind of looking over at the lists we have, no superhero films, and this is a big year. There's a couple of superhero films that are noisy that are going to be released over the summer or maybe into some of the next year. So I think that that, because I think that while you and I are not complete zealots for superhero content, we definitely have a space in our heart for it. So I think the fact that nothing made it on our list is an interesting sign, perhaps, of how audiences might be feeling. We've seen this year some of the superhero swings did not go over in the way that studios might have hoped. Are there any honorable mentions that you want to shout out right here or any other things you want to point to? Just a couple things on my radar. James Gunn's Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, a movie that obviously has had a very difficult time getting made. It is the final entrance of this series. It is the last hurrah for James Gunn at Marvel Studios before he takes over the reins at the DC Universe, before he starts directing his Superman movie, which I can't wait for. And also Taika Waititi's Next Goal Wins, which is also starring Michael Fassbender, which is, I believe, a soccer story 
And I think Taika Waititi is such a fascinating filmmaker, even if his things don't always play to my sensibilities. I think he's carving a place for himself as one of the unique voices who we should be lucky to see more from, whether or not he's making Thor movies. Yeah. I love the development that Taika is having as a filmmaker, and I think that he's definitely pulling back on his acting so that he can dedicate more time to telling the stories he wants to tell rather than just being a part of certain stories. The sports movie really doesn't get too much mileage from me. I'm not sure how passionate I feel about that one particularly, although I do think it's great that he's back in the director's chair. I'm excited for Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, if only for the soundtrack, but I think that that probably will be a great film. One thing that I'm looking forward to, Bo is Afraid. That is the latest film by Ari Aster, previously known as Disappointment Boulevard. It's starring Joaquin Phoenix, who I think is in at least three movies this year that I can think of, so big year for Joaquin. Ari Aster's films are always events. They always leave you talking. They're pretty provocative, and so I'm excited to have that come back around. There's another film called Joyride that's coming out over the summer. This is, I believe, being put out by Lionsgate, although I would have to double check that. It's just being positioned as a comedy. And what is interesting to me is that is the first role that Stephanie Hsu will appear in after Everything Everywhere All at Once. In movies. In movies, yes. Despite the way the Academy Awards played out, I thought that hers was probably the best performance in that film. And so I'm really excited to see her as a young actor take full advantage of the notoriety she has now earned. Without a doubt. Did you have anything else you wanted to add, or do you think we should wrap it up for our listeners? No, honestly, I think that we really covered a lot of ground today. I mean, we walked an entire year in just uh, the span of a couple hours, and I think that I wouldn't want to sour anybody's bliss by continuing to pontificate, so I'm feeling pretty good. Let's maybe just run through our lists for the listeners so that they can hear the sum total of everything that we're looking forward to. So for me, going from the bottom up, I have number nine is Hypnotic. Number eight is the Super Mario Brothers movie. Number seven is Asteroid City. Number six is You Hurt My Feelings. Five is Oppenheimer. Four is Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part One. Three is Barbie. Two is Dune Part Two. And number one for me is Killers of the Flower Moon. Excellent list. My number nine is You Hurt My Feelings. Number eight is Dumb Money. Seven is Argyle. Number six is Gran Turismo. Number five, Killers of the Flower Moon. Number four, Civil War. Number three, Oppenheimer. Number two, The Killer. And number one, Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, Part One. I accept. Beautiful. I think that we've done some great work here. I think hopefully our audience is nice and excited about what they can expect in movies, from streamers, on this podcast. And I feel good about this. So that's going to do it for us this week. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you listening. We're doing this. We're being surrogates for you, the audience. I'm Steve Vieira. I'm Matt Gilbert. And we will see you next time. Take it easy.